Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck there. And uh, if not, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Taylor and I are going to be having a look at Freud's morning and melancholia today. So a very... uh, very exciting topic, I think. I feel very exposed by this piece from Freud. I feel like a, a classic case of, of the melancholic. You actually sound like you're recovering from melancholia. You sound like <laughs> you have that manic that manic affect of right. uh, you've receded all of your object cathexes back into the ego, and now you've got this surplus of energy to dispose of. <laughs> so that remains to be seen. We'll see how that plays out. I think that one thing, you know. I was talking a little bit about just the state of the country and some of the cruel shenanigans that are going on. And I think, you know, maybe one of the potential sources of my melancholia would be, I almost think it's like the libidinal investment in the future, or I just feel inadequate to be living in this world the way that it exists in comparison to the way that sort of the bullshit lies that I was fed as a kid about, you know, America, God, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my lost object is this idea of, I don't know, maybe this is a, a hysterical politics or a hysteria that I'm <laughs> creeping into here, but I don't know. That, that's part of the mania, right? Is, you know, because when, when Freud describes mourning and melancholia, he'll, he'll kind of say mourning seems to not be a pathological state. It seems right. to be a normal state. Interfering with it and trying to stop the grief process is actually counterproductive. And mourning is something has to do with the lost object. And he says that it, it more or less involves in the psychical agency or reality testing, whereby the we are conscious of what we have lost or who we have lost. And, you know, in the reality testing of trying to refine the lost object little by little, we kind of come to terms with the reality of the object not being out there, but merely a sort of thing presentations in our psychical apparatus. And that is a part of the working through of the grief. With melancholy, we haven't necessarily lost an object. The, the loved object may still be alive. And yet there is a... Uh, it's precisely, we know who we have lost, but not what we have lost in them is kind of how Freud puts it. So there's an unconscious component in melancholy right. that manifests in, for Freud, the main difference, although he'll point out some significant differences, but the main difference in, in melancholy, which I think today we would call depressive, depression, just to be clear, that in the depressive state, in depression, the feeling of self-reproach is much more to the fore than we would find in mourning, at least in normal cases of mourning. Obviously, there could be obsessional cases, like with the Rat Man, where we see self-reproaches coming to the fore. But outside of, of, say, obsessional neurosis, 
I think with mourning the normal process, we don't find the same kinds of self-approaches. And so you're kind of saying part of your melancholy is you've not only given up, part of your mania, I think, is given up the cathexes of these ideas you were fed, which you say are bullshit. So you've gotten right. you've gotten rid of investing them. But the part of the melancholia, the depressive, the manic depressive aspect, right, would be this still tackling with your uh, investment in the future and right. how that how that might be a lost cause an impoverishment i think like a spiritual like a, i mean not only a libidinal but like a spiritual impoverishment in addition yeah. to the straight up economics of it yeah I think also you know yeah. before we get too far i wanted to highlight one of the the areas where melancholia and um and mourning overlap for freud in this piece and that is through the common thread of narcissism which if i recall correctly freud specifically says in on narcissism that narcissism is not a perversion it has a libidinality to it i suppose yeah yeah narcissism is not a perversion at least in normal cases for him we all have a, a baseline primal narcissism right because in the most general terms for freud narcissism in this clinical picture is about taking one's body as a kind of erotic sexual, an object effused with erotic libidinal impulses. And so we even know that from the very first, there is the child's body itself is is sort of, you know, it's got these erogenous zones, these autoerotic affections. He'll kind of link autoerotism to a certain extent to um, to primal narcissism. And this is how even later he'll kind of describe homosexuality, which which is kind of with broad strokes, but that instead of sort of choosing the mother, the opposite sex, the mother or the father, right? The opposite sex caregiver as our love first loved object. He'll say instead that there's this over cathexis of one's own, taking one, one's own self as the image of the loved object. And right. that's, so there's this, you know, he'll even try to explain homosexual urges in that way. It's a little rough, I think, but in Morning and Melancholia, what's what's interesting, you're right, there is something about, you know, in love, what's interesting about Freud with, with love, when we are in love, we are both connecting out into the world, into a, into a love person, but we're also in this reciprocal way, we also are seeking out to be loved. And so in love, we find a kind of balance and indistinguishability between our ego investments to be loved and our object investments to love. And so when the loved one dies in mourning, there is also a kind of mourning of oneself. Right. But I think that it's for Freud, you know, melancholia, depression is the more pathological because we kind of expect if we were in anyone's shoes to have to have lost a loved object, that there would be some pain, some unpleasure, some grief, some working through to be going on. And I think that what's most interesting about, well, several things, but I guess the one thing I wanted to point out was that Freud typically talks about mourning and melancholia in terms of another person that we've lost, whether we're unrequited love in the, in the case of depression or obviously the death of a loved one in the case of mourning. But he, at the beginning of the essay, he says it could be the loss of an ideal, right? It could be the I mean, loss. like my example, the yes. ideal future, the idea of America or God or yeah. salvation, et cetera, like all these. Mm -hmm. So you can have a crisis of faith that can lead to a kind of depression, right? You can have a, 
you know, a loss of faith can lead to a, a kind of crisis in the subject. But I think what it is interesting, though, is he kind of drops that one thread and focuses solely on these individual relations of peoples, of persons, whereas I think there is something very fruitful that he leaves implicit in his analyses that that mourning and depression and melancholia can have, they can very well involve this loss, whether it be of a, of a nation, right, of, you know, because he's writing during World War One, right. essay. So nations are being invaded, bombarded. There's all kinds of crises going on that could easily lead to displacement from one's homeland. And also war itself and the means for war, the motives of war, the horrors of war lead one to, even if you're not displaced, lose faith in one's own, in the ideals that your nation's supposed to stand for right. symbolically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to back up, though, just briefly to just to pick up on the narcissism thread about going back to, I mean, you kind of went into this a little bit, I think, relative to the early development of the child, the infant. But I think the mirror stage for Lacan is sort of interesting, just if not anything else, just this like metaphor or, you know what I mean? The visual metaphor for both the myth of Narcissus and the mirror stage and investing in, you know, objects, whether they be partial or you know, full in scare quotes or what have you. You know what I'm saying? I think we talked about this a little bit when we did the on narcissism, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to highlight that aspect of it. Yes. uh, The specifically because of the way, like I think the developmental, the way that I think it goes to libidinal investment and how that sort of structures, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. I would say that, you know, there is a sense in which narcissus and narcissism that as Freud describes it has to do with these identifications Mm -hmm. with Lacan. It's possible that there is identification in the, in the background, but I think that his, his identification, I don't think is the main theme of that mirror stage essay where it's more about the, the entrance into the symbolic. Okay. Well, I was going to say it's, it's really the, it's really the con- confrontation with the imaginary, right? Because you, it's on yeah, the well, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, it's on the, it's on the imaginary level that we finally that before before the child's even acquired language, if mm-hmm. you will, yeah, that there is this illusion of of autonomy and illusion of well put togetherness that will only come later. You could say it's an indefinite process that we're all kind of fucked up, but I, I mean that the child sees. A sort of where it's really just a disparate aggregate of partial drives and crazy erogenous zones, polymorphous perversity. There is this image of a unification, and I think that that's an interesting part. But you could say that there's something. I mean, with narcissism too, there is a sense in which the there is a similar thing, but it may not be purely imaginary. It's almost more libidinal. It's almost more where the body has a semi unity as that which is can be invested rather than any partial zone with narcissus we can finally in looking in the lake kind of see a full object a global person if you will interesting and that that can coalesce as the source of the affections and the investments <laughs> i almost wonder if that like reversal if this alone if this can be a source of melancholy like taking a unity an imaginary unity and shattering it into a multiplicity is a traumatic experience for the ego perhaps but i guess i'm 
getting a little bit far afield. Perhaps it is relevant, though. Those can happen in states of crisis, in psychedelic states, in states of losing one's identity. Imposter syndrome has aspects of this. Maybe it's not as fever-pitched as these other examples. But yeah, we can... I'm thinking of... I forget his name. Jude Law's character in I Heart Huckabee's at the end when he's kind of faced with... The, How am with, I not myself? Well, he's not the one that says that first. But yes, he comes He comes into conflict with this fact that he's he's really just the shallow performed identity. And when right. that identity is reflected back to him and parodied, when he's sort of faced with the thin veneer of his personality externalized to him yeah. and brought back yeah. to him, that leads to him losing the thread of that narrative performance of just these bullshit stories, these lies really that he tells in order to not only to lie to himself first and foremost, but to kind of put on and perform this, this exactly. Yeah. This exaggerated ego when really it's, it's all on the surface and it's completely shallow. And I think maybe this goes to my kind of had developed. I forget when I even thought up this idea, it might've been somewhere around like 2011, 2012, when my grandfather passed and, um, you know, I just started to have this kind of notion that whenever we mourn, it's really ourselves that we're mourning. We kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we're mourning the other person, but it's really about us is what mourning is. You know what I mean? Which I think Freud is, is keen on as well. Yeah. Freud does kind of get to that. You know, there is a sense in which he'll want to complicate depression and melancholy and we'll get to that. But in mourning, there is definitely the sense in which we have loved and we have invested into this other person. And there have been a series of identifications with loved persons that happen, not only first and foremost with the parents, that's just the kind of primal layer, but we have these other secondary identifications and and that those ties, those libidinal cathexes into the loved persons, we have to give them up. And that is very painful. And that is right. part. And so taking back in that that energy that we've put out into others and working through that, that itself. Now, this is interesting, the economics of it. Sorry, I just wanted to point out, highlight that. Because that's something that Freud goes into too, but go, please go ahead. Yeah, that is, there's an economics of it. You're right. Economics of pain, he calls it, I believe, right? A physical yeah. pain even. Yeah, there is an economics of pain, and we're not mourning just that the loved object, but we are mourning the difficulty with which it is to take back those cathexes, those investments. And so, you know, we don't want to give that up, right? right. This is even more so in depressive mourning or, or, sorry, in pathological mourning or in severe depression, where there is almost a, a kind of a magic that's going on where we incorporate the lost object into ourselves and identify ourselves with it. But at the same time, we bring a sort of sadism against the loved object that no longer loves us or that has broken its relation with us. But insofar as that loved object is internalized and identified with, we also have the sadism towards ourselves in this this hatred towards ourselves, which is what he, one of the factors that he finds in two things, one in our lowering of our self-regard but also in what he calls the splitting of the ego, the ego splits away from itself and turns back on itself like a critical agency and judges itself. So this is one of the first formulations of what he'll call the superego. This yeah, is criti- the critical agency. Right. Interesting. You know, what's funny too, is that even like in um, The Sopranos, Dr. Melfi even tells Tony this at one point, like a lot of depression is anger turned inward. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, it's anger turning inward. But what's interesting, though, is that Freud goes on to say that there is another type of doubling going on where the self-reproaches aren't that for Freud, the typical melancholic case is someone who who isn't humble about their loss, the loss of their the loved one that's that's spurning them, that's reputing them. They make a nuisance of themselves and they fucking complain and tear their their hair out and all this this shit. They put on a whole spectacle of self-reproach. Because for Freud, the self-reproaches, there is this sense in which insofar as what insofar as they are approaching themselves, they're they're reproaching and talking shit about and belittling the object that they've internalized that they identify that's another person. So in fact, they're able to complain of they're able to complain about themselves, but really they're performing a plan about this other with whom they're still sort of in communication with. So it is this kind of projection after interjecting the beloved who is who is unrequited our love and we identify it with it, we then are getting revenge on that object. We're just turning it towards ourselves, but it's really for Freud about someone else or some other idea, which he doesn't right. say, but but which is implicit given his initial formulation. Yeah. Right. I like this too. I think maybe my favorite line from the whole thing, and we kind of glossed over this a little bit about people never willingly abandon in a libidinal position. Yes. Relative to, I guess, both loss in terms of mourning and in terms of this other more... Uh, you know, abstract or meta loss that you could sort of describe melancholia as? He formulates it in several places. First of all, you brought up on Narcissism and Introduction, which he published in 1914 at the very start of the war. He writes Morning and Melancholia in 1915, but doesn't publish it until 1970 towards the end, excuse me, 1917 towards the (laughs) end of the war. So there is between the two... Well, first of all, Mel- Morning of Melancholia wouldn't be able to be written without on narcissism. That's kind of clear with how you yeah. brought up to the fore the question of narcissism. And I've tried to describe a little bit of this in this interjection, projection mechanism that he uh, and the identification mechanism that he's working through. But yes, this notion that one never willingly abandons a libidinal position, this is something he brought up in the on narcissism piece. He said it earlier, even earlier than this. But we can think too, not just the not just the one who mourns, which is the normal situation. It's hard to give up all that energy and, and love we've put onto the world towards this one, towards this person. Yeah, it's almost like the sunk cost fallacy kind of kind of in a, yeah. in a, in a certain maybe way. That's a good broad way of characterizing it yeah but there's also you also think about in perversion and with someone who has a fetish as we know as freud says the pervert the fetishist doesn't come to analysis yeah, trying, trying exactly. to cure their because they actually have a, a kind of a short circuit a, right. a shortcut to enjoyment through yeah. through the partial object that is their right. fetish but you also have to think about it how bad would their situation have to be? How severe would their mania, their fetish have to be? What kind of disruption would it have to have in their day-to-day lives for them to seek to substitute a healthier outlet than their short circuit? Well, what I mean to say is the fetishists most of all can say they're not willing to give up their libidinal investment, that position easily without a fight. It would have to be really fucking bad. They'd have to be rock fucking bottom 
you know, spending all their money on feet picks or something. <laughs> I don't, I don't fucking know. You can imagine a situation for yourself, but that easy access to uh, satisfaction and enjoyment would have to pose some serious troubles throughout their lives for them to even consider trying to give up that position. Maybe this is getting too far afield, but I don't know, just in terms of lost object, you know, I was thinking about castration, et cetera. And like that alone, like being enough to, I guess, trigger a melancholia, but I don't know, that's kind of half, <laughs> half-ass formulated, but I just wondered because of this lost object status. This gets to our discussion we had, you know, last year on narcissism, where castration for Freud is the threat of the father to the young child in the sort of the, what, the ages three to eight, whatever, however he stages at the anal and the phallic stage, mm -hmm. where there is this confrontation where the, at least his example is young boys, because as we know, Freud on women is just this whole can of worms that I'd rather not. We'd have to devote a whole episode to it. Right. But with the little boy, the little boy, the first person, the first global person that he takes as his loved object is usually the mother or her substitute. He's always mm -hmm. clear about it. It's the caretaker. It's the female caretaker, the opposite sex caretaker for the little boy. And that investment is quickly met with the law of the father, the father or his substitute, the protector who bars access to the mother, right? And Freud has all these myths about incest prohibition to sort of show how that came about sociologically and genealogically. But the point being, the father is the one that threatens castration that the so that the first loved object that the, the little boy gives up, that's another person that's not their own body, right? Because that's narcissism, is the mother. And so in a certain sense- Does that set up the trace? Like you kind of mentioned in your notes about the mystic writing pad, and this kind of like maybe leaves a trace for later something like melancholia to be attached to. I think like, so. Like libidinally, like it's that kind of, it's sort of this scabbed over area that's maybe perhaps vulnerable to being this open wound that he describes melancholia as, you know, maybe it's like picking at this sort of relationship to the lost or loss. I don't know. The loss of access to the mother. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, as a sexual object. Right. I mean, yeah. because that sort of does, at least speaking like at a meta level, right? It's, we're ultimately talking about libidinal investment, this being sort of a primary, you know what I mean? I guess because the, the child has the primary form of narcissism based on kind of the developmental cycle that Freud sort of uses as a model. And that primary narcissism is reinforced by the parents who, you know, treat the, it's what it's, um, our majesty, the baby. Right. right. As, as Freud says, it's the parents themselves kind of reflect their primary narcissism onto the child. The child is sort of uh, this perfect being, at least at first, you know, this is idealized being. But yes, I think that what you're talking about is what we have to be sure, though, is what we're saying when we talk about this traumatic trace, that castration and the threat of castration from the from the law, from the father brings down to bar access does not have to necessarily be a real situation. Where right. Some, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some, this is most likely more than likely in the realm of fantasy. Yeah. That, see, this is where I think that object ah, like is very instructive just in the way that like it's the function of loss or the function of the gap or the trace or however you want to describe that particular thing. It's the black hole around which desire circulates. 
So it can take, and it's prior to representation because it's in the unconscious. So it can take on any representation and that doesn't matter. That's like a clo you know, it's sort of like can clothe itself in any sort of skin, if you will. Yes. That's why it's awe. That's why it's just a, a, a variable, if you will, right. exactly. like in mathematics. It's a, it's, yeah, the, it's like a it's, zero it's, even. It's the empty sign. Yeah. The empty phoneme, the empty, it's an empty mathematical variable yeah, that, yeah. as you said, can be clothed with any, with any object, depending on one's kind of constitutional history. And, and, and yeah, I mean, this goes to my whole idea too, about the indifference of the drive towards its libidinal investments. It seeks out in like an intensity or something like that. Yeah. I, but that's getting too far afield into the sort of hydraulics of, of desire and cathexis, et cetera. I don't want to derail but, us but, too much but, with all this since we'll probably be discussing this up at another date. Yeah. I think that what's interesting about for our purposes today, because what you're all, all what you're saying is very interesting, but it does take us at least outside of this essay a bit. Yeah. But for Freud here, the main two drives, the main drives we have to consider. There's actually three, although two take prominence. There's the ego drives, the ego cathexes, mm -hmm. the ego investments, this energy that, that sort of, there's an ebb and flow of investments out into the world with object cathexes, object investments, and then back into oneself with ego investments, which would be more akin to, this is what Freud would talk about in terms of secondary narcissism beyond the sort of primal childhood narcissism, the narcissism of the very earliest ages, there's this secondary narcissism that occurs. We could see it in the case of Schreber, right? In his the height of his delusions when everything is fucking... Yeah. The whole race of man has died and been replaced by little puppets, you know? And so Freud is kind of trying to think with these two, this ebb and this flow is how in melancholy we've at one point, we've invested all of this love into a loved person. Let's just stick to persons here because we've already said sure. that it could be an yeah. ideal. And and even though that person hasn't died, situation has changed, and we can now no longer get any reciprocation from that loved object because oh, interesting that libidinal flows are blocked. Yes, he does talk about it as a blocking. This he doesn't use that language in this essay, but in the narcissism essay, he talks about the object cathexes can be blocked and dammed up. In the same way, on the ego side, they could be blocked and dammed up. So I think it's good to talk about this in terms of blockage, but there is a blockage in the reciprocal paths because when we give out all of this energy from the ego into the object, there is a diminishment of the ego, at least in Freud's terms, in terms of this leads to its diminishment of self-regard and states of depression. And since it's blocked, since, since the loved object doesn't love us back, because that would feed back our ego... Yeah, which is yeah. why, which is why there's an indistinguishability between object cathexis and ecocathexis in true love, quote unquote, where there is reciprocity, where when we love, we give out. When we are loved, we take back in and we can continue the cycle. But when the cycle is only one way, when it's not reciprocal, when it gets blocked on that path, that's when we get into the state of what he's calling melancholia and what he's calling yeah. depression. And in mourning, we have to be able to react test and realize that there's no possibility because consciously we know the object's gone and right and dead and can't reciprocate at mm -hmm. least in that way in which those affections could be exchanged while the love person was alive in melancholy there is this sort of unconscious process going on where we want to have our cake and eat it too we want to keep the love object and we devour it as, as yeah yeah 
as kind of Freud thinks, we regress to this oral stage where we devour the loved object. We want to keep the loved object, but we want to internalize it so that we can keep loving it. And then we identify with it in order to make up for the lack of love we're getting from the loved object that has spurned us. But as Freud says, this reversal of the loved object into this narcissistic identification, that by the very fact of doing that, there is this further addendum that turning it around, turning ourselves into this identification object, there's also this sense of there's a sadism involved, right? There's the anal sadistic drive or whatever. The anal sadistic stage kicks in and we have to take revenge. Doesn't he say that this anger, this turned inward is like really a substitution for the anger towards the object or whatever? Yeah. It's a substitution, and he even hypothesizes that perhaps this outburst... So it's, a, it's, a, it's a substitution, not a sublimation, or is like maybe distinguish that a little bit, or am I... If, is that worthwhile to even bring up that distinction? Or so what do you think? Freud says at the end of the Auden Narcissism paper is how we have to distinguish clearly between idealization and sublimation. For Freud, in love specifically the masculine position of love, we idealize the loved object. So we can imagine with the man idealizing the love object and cathecting into it, investing their love into it, the relationship goes sideways or whatever, broken heart syndrome, however you want to call it, unrequited love. Now that idealization is internalized. Freud kind of hypothesizes in order to kind of get over, to work through and to get over that attachment and to recede the cathexes away from the object, that's when we belittle it. We've put the pussy on a pedestal <laughs> and, and now the the pedestal is, we have to try to figure out a, a way to kick the pedestal out from under the loved object because we've identified with it in ourselves. This is why it's internalized and we externalize it as about ourselves, even though it is about the loved object that we've identified with. And Freud says that it can go so far that the superego, the critical agency, can be such a tyrant that the, the ego can end up killing itself. Rather than successfully working through the means of disinvesting, because it's precisely that charge of energy that, that is explosive and it could be the very fact that we don't want to give up our attachment and that's what kills it. Or even more likely that in disattaching, detaching from that investment, such a huge charge hits us all hits us all at once, which is why I think for Freud, it's for mourning and grief because it takes so long. He'll even say like 12 to 18 months or something like this, just arbitrarily. It's the little by little trickling back in through the reality testing that the lost object is not out there. That's what makes it safe, if you will, for mourning to progress slowly um uh, yeah yeah and why so it doesn't overwhelm it, al- it always takes time and i i think that uh with melancholy freud even himself says part of the rage part of the revenge part of the sadism is in its way a way of expending that extra energy that's kind of caught in the flux and right. we rage and we fury we vent that revenge and in doing so it makes it a little bit easier to to recuperate the uh, safer charge of energy that we can then invest into 
other objects. But as Freud said, as you pointed out, we don't want to give up our libidinal position. So it's hard to reorient that and invest otherwise. Even if substitutes are readily available, yeah, there is a kind of, he even talks about this in other ways. There's a conservatism to the drives. The drives are, they like their furrowed channels, right? And so you have to slowly make kind of new tributaries to let the flows. Yeah, yeah this is where I was kind of talking about the drive or desire being similar to water, like it kind of relative to gravity, because water kind of always seeks out the lowest point, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that it can, it can, I don't know why that is. I guess it's because of the intensity, perhaps of the the qualities of the water or whatever, like it's like physical weight or whatever, relative to gravity. Gravity would be the, the main factor in that. But as we know, there's the image of- uh, And what is gravity, but a, objects that are attracted to one another in a sense. Well, I guess that's a way to think about it, not um, in the sense of like a special relativity or whatever, relativity rather. When Freud thinks of gravity, what's interesting is when he when he's conceptualizing gravity, he normally locates it in the unconscious. Because for repression to work, we don't just have consciousness or the, the critical agency or the censorship pushing ideas down the mm-hmm. unconscious with its sort of primal repression with its with its with its favorite navigating yeah trenches. those traces, it's, the it's, traces. It's, the unconscious is pulling the idea down so you need to have both going on you need to have a pressure you need to have a a, a sort of a, a push four, and a pull almost you need to have a four pressure from from consciousness the consciousness system and the sort of after pressure that's pulling down without those two repression can't take place. That's really good. I like that way to pick that one up. That was a nice little, <laughs> you took that I, one and ran with it pretty well. It's interesting to think about. We just talked about a topographical description. Right. First, we were talking about the economics of the libido and this economic model, but now we were talking about consciousness and the pre-conscious and the unconscious and the way that they have to compromise and sort of work together, you know, in order for ideas to be repressed along with their quota of affect is whatever you're saying. That's the topographical, you know, level when we're thinking about these systems. It's almost that differential. Maybe I'm just too, <laughs> have too much to luz in my head from the past couple of weeks. I'm just thinking about that in terms of like the virtual and the actual or some shit. I, I don't know. I can probably cut that out, but well, kind no, of what I was thinking about in terms of topology and like, if you had to be hard and fast with it, I think the unconscious would be the realm of the virtual because right. it does yeah, it yeah. does it does bear these memory traces. It has a kind of and there is a fl- a channel that there are flows back and forth between them. And consciousness, though, would be would obviously be the actual because because for Freud, there has to be for a phenomenon to register in the unconscious. It's like there has to be like two registers going on. You can't sort of it can't enter the unconscious and the conscious at the same time, right? It, yeah. There has to be a there has to be a kind of separation of of channels. And so the consciousness would be at least the actual as pure present versus sort of the indefinite past and future of the unconscious. But that's the topographical levels between these systems. We were just talking about the economic levels. But I've brought up a little bit when you asked about castration, the third type of model Freud uses, which is the dynamic model, which is the question of stages of the oral stage, the anal stage, which could be right. Some, yeah, like, the like a historical, stage, historical the movement. These can all be subdivided and they have their own little complexes and crises, if you will. They have their own tendencies. But these three together, 
the dynamic, the economic, and the topographical constitute kind of Freud's metapsychology. And the volume we're talking about today, the, the essay on mourning and melancholia, comes in the 14th volume, which has essays on narcissism, the unconscious, repression, those being kind of the main metapsychological papers. This is a kind of a shift in Freud's thinking in the around the World War One that I think is some of his most fruitful and most interesting when he's really trying to think through the vicissitudes and the sort of the subtleties in the interaction of right. these three different models to explain psychical phenomena. Yeah, I was going to say the drive, I think here, you can kind of see him gesturing towards that at, at a certain like register, maybe. I think that one of the things I wrote at the very top of our notes was this notion that Freud's investigation here he will extend some of these investigation into his book on group psychology, which is one of the few places where he really will talk about sort of social phenomena in terms of psychical happenings. But here, Freud is almost too fixated on individual relations. Right. It's one yeah, person, true. there's the depressive individual, yeah, and there's exactly. the loved object, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's because he has because he was a practicing analyst, right? He he's thinking of dealing with individuals. Yeah, he's dealing with individuals. He's thinking of cases. But you know, as I said to you before we started recording, is we can see in in the UK with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, there is obviously a uh, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. almost a hyper performative spectacle of mourning yeah. going on right now as we record, which is was today, September seventeenth. 2022 there is the this week long or week and a half long however there's a almost a in terms of the ceremony there's a kind of perversely long national spectacle of performative mourning going on but this is the most kind of cartoonish examples of social uh, mourning but i think that we can easily think of extreme events in the history of of psychical trauma that have social bearings or that are shared by social groups. You don't have to go with something as extreme as the Holocaust, but that is one example in the um, International Psychoanalytic Association's collected papers on mourning and melancholia. Some of the essays deal with the social phenomena of mourning that that talk about the Holocaust. And obviously, like when you're in the extreme situation facing death every day, you don't develop these these symptoms of depression or, or mourning, it's only afterwards, it's only after being sort of rescued, liberated, and settling down and, and living in freer times and happier times that the depression and mourning sets in. It takes time, right, for the, when you're in the midst of it, so much libidinal energy is being expended just surviving. But we can see how mourning and melancholy could easily be a social, definitely ha have social dynamics beyond just the individual's mental, private sphere yeah i was thinking 9-11 for the american yes. context would probably be the best example or ground to sort of till to work through some of these ideas perhaps in a way because it's interesting that it seems at least that the external i mean we all know that bush did 9-11 relative to like the desire for retribution from the other etc well this is exactly how botria talks about it, the spirit of terrorism the complicity with the Americans, the everyday Americans' complicity with the hijackers, there is a sense in which that can be read in terms of mourning and melancholy. You'd have to make a few jumps and, 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 right. and bri bridge a few gaps, but yeah, I for sure. I, but I think that there is something to that. I remember being very depressed by like 
there was a whole lot of shit right around that time that was bad that went on in my life. And I think 9-11 was kind of like the sort of icing on the cake of just like one of the few times that I felt, I guess, impacted by like global events in a in a way that was so intimate, I suppose. So it's it kind wasn't... of a standout for me, I think, just in, in life, broadly speaking. So instead of distracting you from your own sort of tough times, it actually crystallized it? Right. Yeah. It just was like an overwhelming blow of sort of being on the on the shores and a as a tidal wave emerges and crushes you. Did it kind of make shared and social this blow to the to your own narcissism that was? Yeah, going on? I I think so. Narcissism is absolutely on the ego. There's definitely something going on there. Yeah, and so the 9/11 is was a blow to the. It's a blow to ego. it's a blow to the ego, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. To the, to the to yeah to the social fabric, the narcissism of the of the American spirit, if you will. Yeah, um, of this sort of like investment in America as a good, as a force of good, or whatever. Maybe is that maybe it's the undermining of that. It's the sort of the loss of that ideal that creates this melancholia. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that you're right that that sort of crystallizes this relationship for me personally or whatever, but I'm sure there's a phenomenon of that. It is interesting to think about the mania that quickly followed from the melancholy of the bruised narcissism. There was a corresponding mania very quickly in the American spirit to exact revenge. Right. And to to the point of, again, hurting yeah. himself. <laughs> I mean, we spent... We spent trillions and trillions of dollars to go and murder people that weren't involved. It was the very definition of a kind of semi-suicidal mania. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, the after effects of it seem to be <laughs> pretty, like yeah. you can sort of trace, not to pun, you can trace this back to 9-11. I think a lot of where our current sort of trajectory began as a sort of inflection point, perhaps along that path, maybe not as the sort of on its own, the inciting incident, but it certainly tipped the scales of history in yeah, a certain direction. To talk about Bojard's complicity with the, the hijackers in sort of willing this event in the aftermath and the mania and the, and the wars we fought, again, that were misplaced. There's an introversion of Freud's project because now we've sort of, we wanted to find out of us this enemy that could never be exterminated fully enough we wanted to burn and, and salt the earth with anything associated mm -hmm. with any geographical location or, or, right, or right. people associated with it with ideology associated with mm -hmm. with just skin color at a certain point so there's a kind yeah. of extreme extroversion in a way of because of our complicity because of our need to be uh you know to be to suffer the what 9-11 felt like you know in, in terms of willing the event if you will mm -hmm. we disowned that narcissistic image that self-hatred and thrust it outward but again in a semi-suicidal way either way is a kind of suicidal yeah. line of flight right we've gone a little bit uh, far <laughs> abroad but my main point was not to reflect necessarily well on i still think that mourning and melancholy are very much relevant to nine i mean 9 11 is a sort of singularity for this kind of you know, there's potential for both the unconscious element of melancholia relative to this destruction of the idea of America as, you know, the the city on the hill, the like fan the fantasy element, the imaginary yeah, yeah. identification that's going on, as well as the mourning aspect of the tragedy of it too. This is an event that can sort of capture both aspects of this. And perhaps that's why it's such an intense 
events psychically is because of the, you know what I mean? It's operating on two distinct topologies. Yeah. It's just, uh, just to show that Freud's analyses can, can ex- extend to social phenomena and collectives. Just to reiterate a bigger point, since we've actually kind of talked about almost the whole fucking essay and <laughs> extended it. Yeah. Freud has this great line. And I think this is a good way of distinguishing further melancholia and, and mourning. We've already kind of said that in melancholia, the object has not actually been lost like irretrievably through death, but through some sort of change in circumstance. And of course, the main idea just being a, sort of a, a breakup, you know, friendship apart. There can be these all kinds of ways of thinking of it. But Freud says, in mourning, it is the world has, which has become impoverished, right? Because the lost object can't be found out in the world in melancholia is the ego. The ego has become impoverished, which is, I think, why melancholia, depression is about this narcissism, this wounded yes. narcissism. Yeah. And this... This gaping, uh, oozing wound of, of narcissism. Like a profound lack, even, to get off track again. And Freud says the melancholic... I talked about two of the drives, or not two of the drives, two of the... Yeah. Two of the aspects of the libido. The ego cathexis, the object cathexis, right? Investing out in the world, investing in the ego, and this ebb and flow of energies. But one thing that lacks in the background, that third thing that I didn't talk about, was the fact that there are, in narcissism, the basis of narcissism is the very fact that in the beginning, primordially with the infant, the self-preservative drives and the sexual drives, they have not diverged yet. Freud says the sexual drives lean on are supported by the self-preservative drives and it's only later that they diverge and i think this is why for freud the caretakers the mother and the father due to our helplessness as mammals born too early you know in terms of gestation wise we can't fend for ourselves we can't feed ourselves we're totally helpless this is why the first caretakers are these sexually invested objects they're the first the mother or her substitute, whatever. They're the first sexually uh, invested objects. And this is why with this diminishment of ego energy, with this bruise to the narcissism, the melancholic experiences a diminishment in the self-preservative drives and talk about them not wanting to eat, blah, blah, blah. Unable to sleep, etc. This yeah. is one thing where, just to like call myself out again, sometimes I do have a hard time sleeping. I wonder if this is an expression of this melancholia. Freud kind of talks about it in, at least in these, in this essay in terms of object relations, where it's like in sleep, the will to sleep, we see that the sleeper kind of draws back in those cathexes, those investment in the world, and that energy comes back to the ego, which is why for him, the sleeper, the dreams, the wish fulfillment is so... Right, yeah. It's so e- egoistically, not egotistical in the layman's sense but egoistically like charged right it's it's back to our sort of uh we can kind of draw back in from the world and and sort of invaginate in ourselves right and sort of fold up in ourselves and so sleep the sleeplessness of it is for freud with the melancholic it's part of that diminishment of the energies of the ego that that energy is still out in the world still caught up with that loved object there's that blockage that we talked about right Mm-hmm. and we're still too invested in the world which i think goes to show again freud's point that it's the it's the ego that's been impoverished in depression i mean this is anecdotal and not there's a bit off topic but i just want to say that um i think it's fun to talk about freud's 
work in this way because I don't know, maybe there's a lot of space where they're to sort of speculate maybe where there isn't as much in some, like some stuff gets so narrowly focused, but I think Freud works at a level that is like sufficiently, I guess, broad, but that's not even the word I'm looking for. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. It's just fun. There's a lot of, it opens up a lot of space for conversation. I feel like relative to some of the more specifically focused episodes that we've done or do. In Drives and Their Persistitudes, in On Narcissism and Introduction, Freud has this reflection about how science doesn't end the speculation. Because what science does is it, it looks towards observation and puts forth kind of nebulous, obscure, explanatory, conceptual matrices that can be, that have to be tested. Whereas with the psychoanalyst, who, I mean, Freud, Freud really did believe that given enough time and enough and enough science, we could find psychological phenomena, their foundation in a sort of life sciences biological foundation, that psychological phenomena would be subtended by biological explanation. But since Freud is like, we can't wait for biology to catch up to where we're trying to go, we have to venture forth these speculative ideas. And the nice thing about it is we can put forward these ideas without having to invest in them in a way that we can't change hypotheses. Now, Freud did seem to come become a little bit curmudgeonly and want to hold on to certain things and make certain things universal like Oedipus Complex, etc. He did defend certain territories theoretically, kind of. But I do think that for the most part, especially in this period during World War One, when he's talking about speculation, even 1920 after the war and beyond the pleasure principle where he's, he's almost his most speculative, Freud is saying like, In fact, we may not be able to see the foundation and we may not be able to test these things scientifically. The only observation being in in the analyst's office, right? That's the observatory scientific material he's working with and working from, but he's got to extrapolate. He's got to speculate. And he even says it's kind of like, we don't have the base of the pyramid, but we have the top of the pyramid. And really with our speculations, we can modify and remove that top without changing anything fundamental. So I think that this is part of the interesting thing why we can work with Freud in a way to extend him, to try to modify him, sometimes to deal with him heretically, like Deleuze and Guattari, or even some of his contemporaries like Jung and Ronk and Adler, who were much more heretical than some other of his colleagues. I mean, I also want to point out along these lines that I think it is, it's sort of refreshing to see in Freud the qualification of he will upfront say, you know, we can't universalize this, but here's what I'm sort of working with. You know what I mean? It's a bit refreshing to see him kind of qualify his position and say, this is what we've observed. This is what the data I've collected sort of gestures towards. This can kind of help us gesture towards like a, a body of work relative to psychoanalysis and psychiatry i suppose perhaps yeah and i think that freud abandoned in 1895 his kind of more scientific ways of trying to find units of neuronal inputs and outputs and whatever he always kind of kept to that scientific endeavor but you know when he talks about something like libido as a kind of stand-in for a libidinal energy he's not he, he usually will talk about quantity or quota of affect or energy or whatever without being to specify a unit 
Right. Right. I mean, like when he talks about a quota of affect, he's not able to to say that there's a there's right. like a a standard Freudian unit of that could be calculable yet, but still that that type of conceptualization is helpful in thinking about the way in which not only he's seen his patients work through or him work with his patients and interpreting and the talking cure, et cetera. But inferences, I think, is when he's not speculating, he's trying to infer from how he's seen patients deal with their symptoms. And one of the things he says that's really great in On Narcissism, and I think it applies very much so to the melancholic here, is that he will talk about how in love we try to work out these idealizations of the object and our cathexes, as I've already said, and we we want that reciprocated. We want to be loved because that feeds our narcissism. And we, we try to seek a balance in true love. And so Freud will talk about in the cure and analysis, once he mentioned something that you said to me the other day, we try to, Freud says, at least in this stage, we get a patient, they have an illness, they are suffering from repression, they are suffering from these all kinds of different symptoms. And we try to strengthen their ego enough to be able to fend off the tyranny of whether it be the critical agency or the super ego, whatever repressive agency is at work. And he'll say that many times he'll have patients that the process gets started, the ego gets strengthened, and then they leave analysis prematurely and try to fall in love because they said he says they'd rather be cured by love than by analysis. Obviously, his one fear, though, is that in this cutting off of analysis so quickly without really working through the issues, the patient will kind of use the loved relationship, the loved object as a crutch and not really be able to gain that independence. I do think that in the end, Freud, at his best, is trying to grant a modicum of freedom back to the patient he's working with, to give a modicum of autonomy and relief and liberation from these pressures and these compulsions and et cetera, et cetera. With all of my kind of sort of, I don't know how to say this, unconventional relation to Freud, how much I think that he really gives us a lot of tools, even when some of his hypotheses and speculations, like on women's sexuality, are just, they're just typical of the time, even if right. they may be progressive for the time. In yeah. any case, I do think that as best Freud is thinking of not just first do no harm, but actually he's trying to help. He's not just a man of science trying to use these patients as a guinea pig. I really do think he, he's, he believes psychoanalysis can be a cure that can help people to deal, to cope, to, to function independently and with more innocence. It's not just about happiness, but really about, about a kind of freedom. It is a kind of, there's a, a little bit of let's help this person free themselves from all of these things that are overwhelming them and yeah. really actually keeping them from living. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that Freud, at least in his writings, comes across as having this sort of grandfatherly affect, as opposed to someone like Lacan, who I think was far more ambivalent towards his analysands, or like to, the relationship to, is a yeah. different one. Yeah, it's hard to see if Lacan, it's hard to know if he believed in what I just said about right. liberating 
the patient. I don't know. He may have had his own version of this, but he definitely seemed perhaps a little bit more pessimistic. I think um, so, yeah. But I think he would maybe agree with what I said about autonomy mm-hmm. because the analyst isn't there to hold the patient's hand and to make it easy for them. Lacan really did believe that it's got to be hard. Yeah. And it's yeah, not there has to be, be fun. There has to be a libidinal investment in whatever. If there's no investment libidinally, then the cure is not going to work, I guess. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, this is why... The cure in quotes, I suppose. This is why Freud was very... He had certain ideas about certain types of syndromes that couldn't be treated by psychoanalysis. And for the most part, he didn't think melancholics, true melancholics, true depressives could be could be cured by psychoanalysis. Reason yeah. being, let's get back to the ego thing. The ego isn't isn't strong enough to or that's not even the word for it the ego doesn't even have like enough energy available to begin what he calls transference love they're still caught up in this other love that they've never gotten over and never been able to resolve so they're mm-hmm. still they're all their energy is still out in this in this lost object the spurned beloved if you will the beloved right. that is, has not reciprocated and so they don't have enough energy to shift their libidinal position in order to to form what he calls transference love, which he thinks of, he calls it transference. This is why he would talk about transference neuroses don't include the kind of the kind of melancholia that we're talking about. Transference neurosis would be suitable to like a narcissist because a narcissist has enough self-love in order to create that transference bond and counter-transference bond with the analyst where they can feed off of being loved in order to kind of sort of work with that but if the melancholic uh, interesting okay if the melancholic isn't able to create for freud i think he thought if the melancholic is so bad that they can't create this transference i don't know how to proceed with the treatment yeah that makes sense i was thinking too that song um he's simple he's dumb he's a computer because there's a line in the song that's like did you love the world and did the world not love you back basically that's great that fits in here so maybe that's the source of my own melancholy is that I love the world, but the world doesn't love me back. So there's a. That encapsulates mourning and melancholia. Mourning, you love the world, you loved it really hard, and then the world lost that X, that something equals X that. Yeah, that, it lost that a certain, made... like, the fantasy is lost. The lost fantasy, I think, maybe is. It could be a fantasy, but it, or it could be just. Obviously, there's fan- fantastical relations involved. Yeah, but, the, you know, it could, could have an X in the real as well. I yeah. think it, it would involve both, but something was subtracted from the world. And that's why the world seems impoverished right. in mourning yeah. and melancholia. The world doesn't love us back. <laughs> right. And that causes this interesting involution, evolution, identification and revolution. If the world, if the world doesn't love me, then I must be deserving of reproach. Hence my own, I guess, maybe. If the world doesn't love me, I'll take revenge by not loving myself, myself and identifying yeah. with the world. Right. There's this, <laughs> this is interesting. I'm going to tell, I'll get them back, but at myself really right. though, at, at you out there. Yeah. <laughs> but it, which is why, as he says, the melancholic can't shut the fuck up about his complaint, which is why it is a plaint. It's not a complaint. It's, it's a plaint and that the reason like a plaintiff is, in the legal sense, right? Yes, it is exactly right. In the German, the complaint is, is a wailing, if you will. The plaint is both a lamentation and a, like a formal, what do you call it? A formal charge or a formal, uh, um, yeah, le- a formal legal 
procedure, if you will, right. of, of filing up complaint. That's what, that's what Freud means. Shrinky's not very clear about it because he's playing with. Right. Yeah. Cause similar... that was one, this was one of my questions. I was literally, I forgot to even had slipped my mind. Yeah. Ironically when, enough. When Freud says that when we're talking, when we're lamenting how bad we are, we're actually complaining about someone else. Freud says it's not a complaint. It's a plaint in the, in the old sense of the right. word, yeah, yeah. in the etymological sense of the word. That's what he means. He means it's a, it's both a lamentation it's this wailing and gnashing of teeth, whatever, but it's a, it's a formal judicial, yeah, legal, juridical. I accuse you, right? J'accuse. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what Freud is saying. And Strachey could have done that a little bit better, but, but if you look up plaint in Wiktionary in the UK, they still use the term plaint as a filing, as a legal filing. So I, I guess it works because I think Strachey is British, so it would have worked better for a British reader. But I think for you and I, in the American sense, we wouldn't have understood plaint except for lamentation, but you lose that legal side. And that's what Freud is kind of cleverly saying, is that there is a there is a charge. If you I don't know. even know why I thought about plaintiff, but... But that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe something you said was gesturing towards the juridical nature of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess that makes sense. The melancholic and their their revolt. The constellation of revolt that has reverted to the crushed state of melancholy is how Freud puts it. And I guess the revolt is the we are reacting against and taking revenge on this other person that doesn't love us back. Right. If the, since, since the world doesn't love me, I'm rebelling against by not loving the world. And in my narcissism, the world is myself. So I. That's right. That's the logic. Has a sort of in the terms of the solipsist too. If I am the world and the world doesn't love me, <laughs> I'm hating myself. Mm-hmm. And that kind of circular. Does he not talk about too like a circular? Um, maybe I'm. Making it is kind there. of circular. It's a kind of inverted circle. But what's interesting, Freud says, is that by identifying with with the the sort of loved object that we are now turning against and, and turning against ourselves in planting and lamenting, we're able to vent all of these things that we may not want to say directly to that person. There's a way of hiding our our complaints from the person and putting it out in, in plain sight, like the purloined letter or whatever. You know, We're able to just put all of that shit out there, except we've shifted the you to I accuse you to I accuse myself. So we're able to hide it in plain sight. I just had this idea of like the snake eating its own tail as far as this yes. image for melancholia. The way that Freud qualifies that the concept he comes up for this way of taking revenge on the loved object that doesn't love us again, internalizing it, identifying with it, and then turning the revenge against ourselves. He talks about this as a kind of state of conflict, as an ambivalence that as though there is bound up primordially with love, this tendency for hate, this love-hate relationship. Right. And this is what he calls ambivalence. So there is this ambivalence. It may not be endemic constitutionally to the love, but definitely in getting spurned in the loved one, not reciprocating and in the relationship breaking off, there becomes this ambivalence where we love and hate that object at the same time. And yeah, this is why we can revert it to narcissism, right? Because insofar as we love ourselves, we love the loved object, but also we hate the object at the same time because they have they've hurt our fifis right so 
Oh, this bit about Lucretius, perhaps. I thought this was good. Freud doesn't really say a lot about this, but he brings it up and he could do better. But he kind of says that that in melancholy, there is this fear of becoming poor, that one of the the fears associated with the self-reproaches is about becoming poor. And when Lucretius talks about why we should not fear death, he says that, that in life, we fear, first of all, that we will be judged critically by the gods. But then Lucretius says, the gods are very happy. They're in a state of ataraxia. They're totally unperturbed by human lives. They don't give a shit. So you don't have to worry about that. And the second thing is that he says that after death, we project this future where we will be impoverished, where everything is like in the realm of shadows, and we wouldn't fear poverty in life so harshly if we didn't already fear this this state after death. But Lucretius says, look. Yeah, is it like there's an enjoyment that we are, we're afraid that we won't enjoy? And, yes. Or the, like the world will go on enjoying and we won't have access to that jouissance. That, and that, that kind of like fucks with our whole psyche. We have this afterlife where we we assume we'll we will be completely cut off from sources of enjoyment, which is represented by the state of wealth. Obviously, Freud makes this about a sort of anal sadistic stage, which is why for Freud in the end, shit equals money. But that's a whole another thing that's a little for me a little flimsy, but it's interesting on its own. Yeah, terms. I but, thought that was. But with but with Lucretius, compelling. it's but with Lucretius, it's about how. We imagine at our death splitting and standing beside ourselves and weeping beside our corpse. Right. Releases <laughs> like, like this splitting never happens, which we can imagine the splitting that Freud talks about in Melancholy, where there's a splitting of the ego. Part of the ego becomes this critical agency, the superego, that judges critically the ego. There's a kind of similar thing going on. But Lucretius is like, you can only die, you can't be dead. There's yeah. a transition from from the nothingness before death to the nothingness after death. There's no in between because when we die, the very first what happens is Lucretius thinks of the body as this airtight vessel, and when we die, the lightest atoms of the body leave, and the lightest atoms are the soul. So there can't be the splitting because there's no soul there that would constitute a living assemblage when we're dead. When we're dead, the first thing to go is the soul. So it doesn't spiritualize next to us and stand next to our corpse and and weep but he does say that the rituals associated with death in mourning the sort of the tearing of clothes the pouring of ash over the head blah 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 this all is a kind of psychical representation of the illusion of the afterlife as this completely impoverished and destitute and state of lack of enjoyment and lucretius is like nah dude you're it's nothingness you don't have to be afraid. You'd be totally cool. This is why he's a materialist, yeah. but also kind of an atheist. I mean, you know, he'll say that he believes in the gods. The gods are off doing their own thing. So he might as well be an atheist, right? Freud's kind of similar in this sense, I think, even though he doesn't bring up any notion of the afterlife in this essay. It's all about the living in this essay. This is interesting because this reminded me a bit of, I don't know if you recall how I was talking about how I, the idea of being a corpse is repulsive. Imagining myself as a desiccated husk is just revolting, and I never want to be perceived as like a dried up, shriveled body. Like, that's just, I don't know, there's something profoundly, um, I don't know, degrading about having a finite body. Well, the interesting thing something is something I've been thinking about a lot. I've been thinking about my death and like 
dying in all these horrible ways <laughs> as a way of warding it off, right? Well, the interesting thing is the way you won't be there to see yourself as a corpse. You can only imagine yourself as I a know, corpse but that, while just, you're living. It's almost it's not a paradox. It's, yeah, but even that, it's like, even though I know, I ver- I know very well that I won't see myself this way, the fact that I know others might is enough to upset me <laughs> or like cause a revulsion. You know, this is, it reminds me not only because you've said that like your ideal way of dying is like in a nuclear blast with no right, trace. Just be totally just, yeah, exactly. Just complete this, destruction. This is how Saad said he wanted to be buried in the forest, planting like plant a tree over his grave. Don't leave any mark. Don't leave any tombstone. Don't leave any here lies the Marquis de Saad, blah, blah, blah. He kind of wanted to be leave no trace. That might be a very poetic way to end the episode. Sounds good. Yeah, because nobody be, would be around to mourn him. I think that's <laughs> part of what yeah. he's, you know, as though he had never existed, as though... Which is that sort of, I don't know, he's sort of leaning into that notion that there's not an enjoyment that he'll sort of be impoverished by. And no one will be impoverished by... By his, oh, yeah, yeah. By his, by his life. That's good. I like it. Because all of his tortured subjects that give rise to this libidinal surplus they undergo all of these fantastic, impossible tortures as though they were immortal bodies, mm-hmm. as though they could never die through the the extremities that they're led to. And, and this is like an infinite source of suissance. The dead body doesn't, doesn't concern Sod at all. It's As opposed to Schraber's God, just to be a smart ass there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, with Schraber's God. Schraber's God is, is, is a... Who is kind of a sadist, which is He's, ironic. Right? Schreber's God is a di- dissectionist on on the whole, right? He only knows corpses, except for very, very important people, which is part of the mania and megalomania that occurs after melancholy has been traversed. And the other side of melancholy is this intense wave of libido back to the ego from the object. And that's why that's why mania often follows melancholy that manic depression, right? That overcoming depression, the blockages, et cetera. There's this new source of energy as though we've overcome this great obstacle. And for Freud, it's like the mania after melancholy is like, I'll fuck anything that moves. I'll take up any libidinal position. I'll invest any object out in the world. Like, let's fucking go. Nice. I was thinking too, just about that. It's funny, like the torture that sort of, I don't know, there's an analogy between the torture of Schreber and Desaad and kind of what you were getting into there, right? He does have a immortal body in a sense, right? The way that he is regenerated, you know, the organs disintegrate and are re- Miraculated. Re-miraculated, yes. That's right. So Schreber's, Schreber's God demands a virtually infinite amount of voluptuousness and enjoyment from him. And if any little bit of residue and share falls Schreber's way, he thinks he's earned it. It's the same for the sort of immaculate immortal bodies in Saad's stories that undergo these terrible sufferings and tortures like Schreber. They're supposed to be these virtually infinite Mm -hmm. sources of enjoyment. That was a pretty good pull out of my ass (laughs) on the fly moment. I don't know. What do you you think? Do you think we've tilled the soil fairly well today? I think so. Yeah. Since we talked about mania, I think, I think it's feeling good. Do you want to close out here? Yeah, I think we can do that.
And folks, that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.